TED Audio Collective. Just give me three words. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> what, what, I mean, are you, are you psyched? I'm so psyched. Right? It's perfect for us. It's perfect for us. Yay! Okay, we gotta get to our first story. This is Zigzag. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. And that was me and Jen, a clip from season one, a key moment when we realized we were getting a grant that would actually make it possible for us to quit our jobs, start this show, end our business, Stable Genius Productions. It's now pretty darn obvious that that moment was the top of the roller coaster, or in more analytical terms, phase two of our hype cycle, the so-called peak of expectations. A business that gives us full creative control and makes podcasts that change the status quo. Money! Such grand visions. The world feels full of possibility. The peak of expectations makes you feel brave, motivated, ready to tackle anything. I asked Jen recently if she remembered that feeling nearly a year ago of being at that high point. The level of excitement and exhilaration, I remember being in the car and being really, really, really stoked. And now, Mm. I'm really, really tired. That's the only difference. You weren't tired then? No. Adrenaline. We hadn't even done anything. We hadn't made anything. I was so stoked. Where are we on the hype cycle then? Are we still at the peak of expectations? No. Yeah. Peak of expectations is temporary, necessary, but never sustainable. And yet that high, that high really serves a purpose. Jenna's going to be here later in the episode to talk more about that. I don't think we did anything or set out to do anything major that we totally failed at. Oh, so you think that we um, changed the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives in the year? (laughs) You could make, one could make an argument that in some small way, yes. (laughs) Okay, did we have dreams of grandeur? Maybe, Maybe it was a little grandiose. And after a quick break, more from our producer Thalia Beatty and her reporting from a town in upstate New York that is also riding the hype cycle. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. In the spring of 2018, it was clear that the small town of Messina had gotten bit by the Bitcoin bug, as North Country Public Radio and WWNY-TV reported. Around 700 million will be the total invested here. Town supervisor Stephen O'Shaughnessy was over the moon when all of a sudden companies that do something called Bitcoin mining were knocking on Messina's door. Another miner wants to establish operations just down the road at the former General Motors site. Cryptocurrency Silicon Valley. It's perfect. (laughs) Was it perfect? Thalia went to visit the crypto factories that got people, wait, well, some people, 
all excited. And to see for herself how hundreds of small computer rigs doing math problems all day long produce Bitcoin. Here she is. Is what I'm hearing the the computers? Yeah. Yes. That sound equals money. That's what yes. the... <laughs> you know that Gatsby quote? There's some description of a woman's voice. Her voice sounds like money. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, new... <laughs> the new Gatsby. The new Gatsby. <laughs> That's Mike Campbell, Senior Vice President for North Country Data Center, which is the local affiliate of CoinMint. And Don Hewlett, the comptroller. After hanging out with these folks, it's hard not to be convinced that they are cresting at the peak of expectations. I was floored by what they're building in Messina. And what I didn't even know was that they have two other mining operations in Plattsburgh, a town two hours east. Hi! Leon? This is Leon. Here's Leon Chrisman, the facility manager there. I've put a lot of time here. I mean, I live right there, uh-huh. and I had a bed here when I, you no. know. Yeah, but it, <laughs> to no avail. You try to sleep, and it, that, that buzzing will go into your bones. But it's not just the deafening noise and the blinking green lights that contribute to the hype. It's because by running calculations and being part of the Bitcoin blockchain network, these computers are making bank. Serious money. To this day, here in Plattsburgh, we have almost 5,400 Bitcoins that have been mined here. We have 5,396.88, which is substantial, you know. Coinment wouldn't tell us how much money they've made mining Bitcoin at their facilities. But if you take just the 5,400 coins mined at their one Plattsburgh facility and multiply it by what the price of Bitcoin is right now, which is $3,444 as of this recording, that's over $18 million. And if you consider last spring, Bitcoin was still clocking in at around $9,000. It's likely they've made a lot more than just $18 million in the last nine months or so. And they're expecting to grow. Big. They're setting themselves up to scale this operation even more. I wouldn't even want to begin to question how much this all costs. You know, just in pure hardware alone in this facility, at the bulk pricing we get, is over 15 million just in hardware for the miners and the PSUs. That investment he's talking about, investment in hardware for the miners, he's referring to specialized computer hardware. The miners are a bunch of small computers whose sole purpose is to constantly solve a string of complex math problems on the blockchain. The miner that gets the right answer first earns a reward, new Bitcoin. And that's what pushes these mining companies to scale up. And what makes the site back in Messina, the old aluminum factory, so perfect. It's a big, cold building with a hookup to a lot of electricity. Mike and Don are clearly proud of this big operation. Oh my God. Okay, so for scale, I just want to show you just how long these rooms are for scale before we start looking at them. So we'll just walk up to the next line. And there are six of these lines. Okay, so like, how many football fields? (laughs) (laughs) 1,500 feet, just under 1,500 feet by 60 feet wide. And it's like frost covered right now. It is. So you see the air, open air from the bottom Mm -hmm. there, and then you see it's open to the top. It's designed to pull the heat up up and out. As we look 1,500 feet down into this massive space, I notice a pile of miners waiting for repair. 
and I ask Mike what it takes to keep them running. At the end of the day, they're just little computer boards, so we have to take care of them, but there are things that can make them fail, like heat or... Like dust? Or dust, yep. They're pretty robust. Typically, the power supplies are the thing that fails more often, and they're a replaceable unit. One of the things I thought was totally fascinating is that you're constantly racing. Yes, yes. Every single Bitcoin transaction is a race to be the one to solve it. And the rewards for solving it at this point are um, 12 Bitcoin plus transaction fees. Okay, and is this like baseball? Do you have like a batting average? We don't have a batting average, we have a hash rate. (laughs) We have our hash rate and we have our, it does show how much luck we've had and and how many. uh... If you're wondering what a hash rate is, it's the speed at which the computers are calculating. So the faster they go, the more calculations they do, the more Bitcoin CoinMint makes. They also make money off transaction fees and operating other people's mining rigs for them. All those revenue streams together add up. Here's Leon Chrisman again, the facility manager in Plattsburgh. Yeah, that was one day, almost $5 million. $4.7 million. Yeah, they're making good money, most definitely. What do you guys do with the Bitcoin? It's it's a value holder? Like, do you cash out each day? We do. I believe it's done on a five-minute increments, actually. So, yeah, we're cashing out pretty quickly. Just let that sink in. Basically, as soon as they earn Bitcoin, CoinMint converts it into cash. It's sort of breathtaking. But the real physical experience of going to visit CoinMint's factories was intense. Entering one of the shipping containers where all the miners are stacked up is like walking into a sauna. Oh, it's warm! So this is the heat that we're exhausting. Oh my gosh! Yeah. It's like an oven! It's It's a good reminder that although Bitcoins are digital assets, the mining process is what tethers them to our physical world. It's highly energy intensive. The push and pull of forces taking in air and exhausting it takes special infrastructure to transport the energy to the miners. On a side note, listeners, trust us, we will get to the environmental impact before the end of the season. in the Bitcoin circles. People are excited about the size and magnitude of this facility and this scope. So there are people who would like to get in on it and get a piece of what we hope will be uh, one of the biggest facilities in the world. How many people work here now? We're at about 45 now with the intention of increasing as we start to ramp up and fill more rooms. When CoinMint first came in, you know, there's this promise of 150 jobs over two years. And I think that as I've been speaking to people in Messina, they feel like that hasn't materialized, like that something was overpromised. What would you guys say in response to that? I just want to make sure I'm like airing, you know, the comments that I'm hearing. Our goal was to be further along than we are now. The dip in Bitcoin obviously hurt us. The new technologies that are coming out are worth waiting for in our eyes, and that's kind of slowed us down as well. Our goal is still to be there, and obviously the more people we hire, the more profitable we are as well. So that's absolutely what we're aiming for, and we would love to be that kind of boon for the community. People tend to like glaze over when you start talking about Bitcoin. They're like, oh, that's not going to work. You know, what is, even is that? You know, like, it's... 
it's a hard conversation to have. What you just said, it is really hard to wrap your head around what the value is mm -hmm. that's being produced here. And especially in this town where people were used to being able to really physically see and touch see and smell what the hell was going on. And this is really much more, I mean, abstract. Yep. Absolutely. There's just a lot of misconceptions that come with it. And until you came in, is this what you expected to see? No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, when people come in here, they're generally, you know, their mouth is open and going, wow, you know, th there is something built here. There's a lot of actual tangible things going on here. It's hard, too, because there's a resistance to change, especially amongst the older generation where, I mean, some of them still don't even have bank accounts because they don't trust them. So to, to try and pitch a, an imaginary currency, a <laughs> cryptocurrency, <laughs> Uh, as as something that's viable to them, it's uh, it's a very difficult task, and and it's reflected in the fact when they say, "Oh, we don't know anything about that. We know it exists here, but we don't know anything about that." Mike and Don, the two locals who got hired to run Coinmint, stand by the company's huge potential. Yes. We wouldn't be here if we didn't believe in it and that it's going to succeed, and we hope to be at the forefront of it. We both come from other industries and are bringing something to this place and this new idea, and I I believe in it or I wouldn't be sitting here. You guys, thank you very much. Thank you so much Glad for you came. coming. Yeah. Glad you came. You're welcome anytime. Thank you. Cool. <laughs> That's our producer, Thalia Beatty, and the peak of excitement up in the North Country of New York State. I want to make sure I say that right because we had a listener write in to tell me that I said it wrong on the last episode. Folks up there don't live in North Country. They live in the North Country. My apologies and thank you. Don't go anywhere because after the break, Jen's here and we are talking about our own peak of expectations and the $230 million making us wonder if podcasts might be at that peak too. See you in a sec. We're back. It's Zigzag. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you are? Your co-founder, Jen Poyant. It's true. Okay, so Jen, we've been talking on this episode about this second phase of the hype cycle, the peak of expectations, and uh, we were pretty high on starting this business. <laughs> Looking back now, it's, it's exactly a year since we first sort of really thought about doing this. Do you think that we were unrealistic... And what purpose do you think being at the top of the roller coaster, that peak of expectations, serves for an entrepreneur? I do not think we were being unrealistic. Interesting. Keep going. <laughs> because everything that we basically set out to do at the beginning, like the big dreams that we talked about, for the most part has come to fruition. It's taken a lot of hard work, which we knew was going to happen. Yeah. But I don't think we did anything or set out to do anything major that we totally failed at. Oh, you, so you think that we um, changed the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives in the year? <laughs> uh, you could make – one could make an argument that in some small way, yes. <laughs> was it, okay, did we have dreams of 
grandeur. Maybe maybe it was a little grandiose. To Sorry, say that, I just but. screwed up on the level. So if that sounds funky, <laughs> listeners, apologies. Um, because we're in our little audio booth. We still don't have our own studio. I, you know, I, wait. I don't think I answered your second the second oh, part yes. of the question though. Let me read it to you again because I I really thought hard about these questions. What purpose do you think being at the top of the roller coaster, the peak of expectations, serves for an entrepreneur? I think it allows entrepreneurs to envision their best possible scenarios. Yes, that's true. And then for them to go after them with as much heart and intelligence and planning as they possibly can. I completely agree with you there. Like, I, I think that the the vision that we spelled out initially was, you know, I think the way that we said it maybe made it sound like we were going to accomplish that within a year. And like, no, of course not. Right. So, right. But I think what it served to me is thinking we could accomplish it way more quickly <laughs> than we have gave me like a fire in my belly that like really uh, – God, we powered through those first two seasons mm-hmm. of the show, and I don't think I would have had the energy to do it had I not been so high. Yeah, and it also created a framework, right? Like the, those goals, as grandiose as they sound, created like a thematic approach to the way we think about both our business and the show and how we connect to listeners. If we weren't thinking in that way, <laughs> we could have been all over the place in a way that, yes, we had to zigzag here and there. But it it created kind of a theme and a, and a framework for us to follow. Okay. And then, you know, the highness, yes, it kind of provided a little bit of oomph at the beginning. <laughs> now, part of the reason we also had that high was, of course, um, because we got that grant. And I would like to remind you, Jen, also of the debate that we had a year ago when crypto was at its very high. I was super skeptical but curious. You, I have to say, you were willing to believe to the point that we played a clip on this show, I'm not going to play it again, where you said that the civil tokens, that cryptocurrency that we were given as part of our initial grant, uh, might be worth a lot of money. Yeah. Am I supposed to eat crow a little bit? Oh, (laughs) did I just set you up to like, no, I didn't mean to do that. No, it's okay. I, uh, I was willing to believe that. And there's still, this might be really messed up, but there's still a part of me that's willing to believe that, like, you never know. It could still, like, they could end up succeeding in a different way. And those tokens that are, like, sitting in our wallet somewhere, like, 10 years from now, we would be like, wait, what <laughs> What happened to oh, those tokens? Yeah. I'm not, like, that happened to Bitcoin holders. Like, right. I, I know Bitcoin holders where, like, they, to- they, like, bought it on a lark, laughed about it, lost their wallet or, like, lost their key. And then 10 years later, they're like, where is it? Oh, my God, I've lost a million dollars. I'm just saying it's totally possible. <laughs> I'm not saying it's going to happen. And no. I'm not. But, like, I think what, the, what it gave for me, like, there were a few moments where I was like, whoa, what if it really did work? I feel like it gave me as a reporter such an insight into the process that people who are creating something completely new that sounds crazy, like, where their brains have to go. Like, yeah. I, I understood it in a way that so often journalists, I think, are like— well, that was duh. Yeah, exactly. And like I started, yeah, because we start out with a journalist start out with a perspective of skepticism, right? Not wild optimism, right? Never wild optimism. Okay, <clears throat> I would like you to remind people though, uh, what comes after phase two of the hype cycle after the peak, the trough of disillusionment. Such a good name. It really it? is. I really admire them for coming up with these funny names. Wallowing in the trough. Um. 
that's going to be the next episode. So I don't want to like get you to talk about it too much here because the trough is fascinating. It's like so crazy. But do you um, have you felt trough like over the last? I have. Year? Yes. What what moments were those? It's funny because I'm sometimes I wonder if the listeners actually hear me when we hit those moments. I've been thinking about that recently. Mm, that's interesting. Like. I made an entire montage about my sleep problems, <laughs> and then I admitted my email problems openly to the world. Yeah, and then recently I admitted that I that I was like I had like a tiny mini, just a mini breakdown. Yeah, and I think I was just a little burned out that week. Yeah, and somehow for me, I always related back to this commute that I'm not even really doing very much anymore. But when I do do it, it freaks me out for some reason. So that's it's so interesting. That's weird because you've been doing it for so long. I know. I, I do think the MTA really is just a mindfuck. It's just sorry, fucks um, with your head, messes with your head. Yeah. Uh huh. In a way that like two, like even a year and a half ago wasn't nearly as bad as it is now. Uh-huh. But regardless. I just want our listeners to know those are all reflections of like normal challenging points uh-huh. in the entrepreneurial experience but sometimes <laughs> they hear me talk about it because I, I, i'm an open book but like i'm a positive happy mostly well-adjusted person too you're, you're awesome dude <laughs> but but yeah we i do think i do think we have hit a a mini trough can i just are say there though, mini troughs do you think well i think what there are are mini hype cycles i think that they just like some hype cycles are long and oh, like others seasons. are yeah and then they're like little short ones like i think you can have a hype cycle within an hour like while i'm writing an episode i'm like <laughs> how am i going to start this innovation trigger <gasps> this is going to be the best episode we've ever done <laughs> well, that's the creative you process right? totally and then i'll trough this episode is going to be the worst freaking episode we've ever made well not if i use these clips then up i go again yeah yeah no it's true okay uh, I have um, – we're going to get more into the trough, obviously, in the next episode, like I said. But I do want to ask you, if you are trough-like, do you <laughs> do you think that I spend too much time at the peak of expectations, that I get too excited about new projects? No. You don't? No. Here, Well, let me – hear me out. I don't think you spend too much time there. Okay. I think you, your time is quite well spent there. Interesting. Can because I just of say our there was creative- this moment? I got to set it up for the listeners. This moment, we were in a meeting and we were basically pitch. I, I don't know what we were doing. We were bouncing around creative ideas with a potential, like, business to make a deal, right? Yeah. And we walked out of the meeting and you looked at me and you were like, Jesus, you cannot stop selling us. And I, I was like, I don't even remember You don't this remember meeting. that? You were, I don't even remember who it was with, but I remember being like, Oh shit! You're right. Do you? Where were we? It must have been like, like. Can do you remember the space we were in? Like what's like a we work? <laughs> was it like a we Sounds work? Or was it a different kind of co working space? Was it a coffee shop? I think I guess um, I vaguely remember this. But. I can't remember who we were meeting with, but you, you just you came out and you were like, you cannot stop. You can't stop generating ideas. Like I was like, and then we could do this and this and this and this. <laughs> And you were like, oh, okay. at first you were like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I kept going. You were like, okay, all right. Can, <laughs> could you back off just a little bit? No, so here, my I stand by my answer that you are an idea generator like I have never seen. <laughs> and I feel extremely lucky to be your co-creator because usually I can be like, yes, yes, nah. Uh-huh. 
Yes. Uh-huh. And like you let me and then you pick add and choose and add and then we make like beautiful things. Um but you just need—it's like a batting average, right? You uh, need a lot of ideas, uh-huh. and you just—you generate and generate and generate. And then, what we really do is like once we hit on the the big one, that's where the peak excitement really hits. Uh-huh. Like the idea generation is one thing, because that's a trigger innovation trigger yeah. usually, right? There's related to a trigger, but like you don't spend too much time at the peak okay. of excitement. Because then you're ready to be like, no, we need to move. We need to, like, do this. We need uh-huh. to do that. We need to do that. And usually I have to, like, catch up to you at that point. Sometimes it's hard for me to know which ones to pay attention to. Like, the other day I happened to, like, it was freezing, so I stopped at the public library to call you. And um, you remember this? No. You, you were – oh, can we just also say, like, we were making it work. You worked from Puerto Rico. You would check the waves and then check in with me. Like, this is working, this it was little business, for now. freaking awesome. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. And then meanwhile, I'm, like, trudging around, and I stop in the public library to get warm and to call you. And I call you, and I'm like, Jen. I don't think you even heard me. I was like, Jen, Jen, I just came up with the best idea for a <laughs> podcast. And you were like, what? What? <laughs> You're, like, in Puerto Rico, like, probably in a bathing suit. Like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, it's called This Book Spoke to Me. And we randomly go into a public library and we pull 12 books off the shelf and we see what happened to those books and we, like, see if the ideas were right or wrong and follow to catch up with the author and see what happened to them. What did I say to you? You were like, uh-huh. So can we talk <laughs> about the mix and blah, blah, blah? And then – but it's stuck in my mind, this one. And I don't remember even hearing you say that. I apologize. No, it's okay because I think you were like – you know, we were there to talk about something specific. So you were like, shh. <laughs> Quiet. And, like, you gave me a little bit of, like, a verbal tranquilizer. No, because librarians would love that. Wouldn't that be a good book? This book spoke to me? Because I was walking around the stacks, and I was like, how do we decide what to choose? Like, you know? And and now I, the I find decide I find for us. But what? Totally. It, remember that day when you used to go into a library and yes. be like, why would you pick that book off? It Dude, was serendipity, right? I've been really—I have felt very guilty about this recently. Did I tell you about no. the, um, the subscription service I use now? No. This is— kind of douchey, and I, I apologize to the oh, world no. for it. But, um, you know, I'm a single mom, and yeah. I've been wanting to support my son's reading habit, like, but I haven't had the time or energy or wherewithal to, like, go in and, like, talk to the librarians and be like, which ones are the best Caldecott winners for age uh-huh. seven? Uh-huh. And this is the what his Amazon interests are do or that whatever. For you. No, I know. I just But there's this, there's a, like, a startup that if you pay 10 bucks a month, like a membership fee, they'll send you like a curated list of books in a box. And then you literally go through them. It's like it's like uh, those stylist services, yes, but, for but for kids books. Kids books. Amazing. And then you just pick out the ones you want and then you just s- send them the ones you don't want back. And then you just pay for the Amazon price of what those books would be anyways. Fascinating. Can I just say, do not feel guilty about that. That is a wonderful thing because what you're trying to do is you're trying to increase the batting average of your son reading books that he falls in love with. Totally. So he falls in love with reading. So he wants to go into a library and be like, which book speaks to me? Kind of, except that you'll never go to a library. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of messed up. I apologize to all librarians across the world right now because, like, I should just be going to the library and doing that. I know. This life we're living It's right absurd. Now, and it's I apo- I'm embarrassed to admit this. But— it's it's also working. Like, we're reading great books together. Really? Like, every night, we're like, which ones are we going to read? And which, you know, we reread the ones that he's really into. And, like, of course, like, that always happens. But they're really good books. Right. 
Okay, wait, where were we? Um, thank you for saying that I don't spend no, time. No, I like that You idea. just made That's me feel idea. really good about my peakiness. Um, we could do that. We could do that show. Which one? The library one. Don't you think it'd be good? Yeah. This book spoke I mean, to God, me. It's a research Leave it to one. you to make another super nerdy podcast, but I know. it's very nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> How do we sexy that one up a little bit? I don't know. I think we make it like... Um, we, we have a huge sweepstakes where you get to be the person who gets to wander into the library and pull a book. Like, we're going to choose 12 lucky winners who come and have a dinner with us, and then we get the Brooklyn Public Library to open late, and they go in, <laughs> and they just choose the book. And those 12 books are our season. It's going to take us, like, a good six months to pull it off. Like a lock-in. A lock-in. Exactly. Yes! <laughs> At the Brooklyn Public Library. At the Brooklyn Public Library. Sexy. Right? (laughs) And then you're like, what happened to this book? Like, can I just – well, we're going on way too long. But can I just say I read this obit of this woman who was at Stanford University who was doing all of this really intensive research into the brain differences between boys and girls. Mm -hmm. And she had this crazy life story. And then it turns out she wrote an autobiography. So I went on Amazon, sorry. Mm -hmm. And I found it. And I was like – this is the type of book that, like, had I not read the obit and realized that she and I had to, or it took a weeks for it to come. Huh. But that used to happen to me all the time in the library. And, yeah, 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 totally. It did for me too. I mean, one of my like most beloved memories of like young adulthood was I went to graduate school in London, and and part of like being in that system, you're you're you become a member of the of the British oh, yeah. library, and it's just like this unbelievable. Fabulous, there, it's right? just unbelievable, and. I, you know, yeah. I'd spend hours in the stacks. Like To all the librarians listening, we love, we you. love you. We do. We love you. Okay. I'm going to tell everybody. <laughs> this, this conversation took a turn I did not expect. Okay, Jen, one last question before we go. There has been a bit of very big business gossip in the podcasting world that we live and breathe in. Fill people in. Okay, multiple sources are reporting that Gimlet Media is going to be bought by Spotify for $230 million. And how much initial investment did they take, Jen? Approximately, from what I've read, $28.5 million. Now, to be clear, this is fascinating in multiple ways. Fascinating because we're friends with them, and they actually came on the first season of ZigZag to talk through why they took VC money and what their goals were for their company as opposed to what our goals were. Secondly, this is really interesting because that seems like a lot of money. It's a 10x return, right? More. Yes. I can't do math. (laughs) But the point being, like, I don't know, is a podcast content company worth $230 million? Like mid-roll or Stitcher or whatever you want to call it went for $50 million. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. Like I was just starting to, in my head, like add up all the shows that they do. But then also they do that custom content and that's worth a lot of money. Right. And the... IP, I guess, that's starting to come out of there. Right. So, like, maybe that adds up. Maybe that adds up. I, I guess know. it does. I mean, I obviously I'm thrilled for them if that's what they want. I don't know. I can't help but thinking about Alex in the first season of Startup where he's like, well, I don't know if I want to build a company that I sell. Isn't the point to, like, I don't know. He was sort of idealistic. Did he say that? Yes, he did say well, that. I don't know. He can go build whatever he wants now. Right. That's <laughs> That is true. Um I will say, though, I worry that podcasts are at the peak of expectations, and we know, of course, what comes after that. Yeah, the trough of disillusionment. Yes. So, I don't know. I hope that we're on the plateau of productivity, but what if we're not? That's the thing, though. I mean, even if we 
enter the trough of disillusionment, which is I think probably comes in the form of lower CPMs, meaning like the amount of money that advertisers will pay for impressions on podcasts. Like that might go down, say if there's a recession or something. But but, like you and I are messing around with all sorts of different funding models for podcasting and everybody else is too, I think, to some extent. And like it seems like the the technology for – discovering good podcasts is seems like there there might be like a trigger of innovation happening there soon. <laughs> nice. And like, you know, Spotify is part of that. That's true. And and then the idea for a while there was that like you were going to be able to access them in your car really easily. Like, I don't know what's happening there, but that's happening, but just this discovery thing still makes it difficult. Right. But I guess my point is is like the possibility of the rate of of like adoption for podcasting is still very that's true like there's just so many people that still don't understand how to how to do it but once they do they're like wow this is awesome and you that know? would be good like if spotify cracks that or any other company cracks that yeah i mean i got i got to say this is going to sound a little cheeseball but storytelling and like <laughs> I mean it. In yes, this. Joseph Campbell. Exactly. Dude, <laughs> you just channeled me. That is exactly where I was going to go with this. <laughs> it's true. It's an ancient form of communication and community building and of passing down our histories and and noting our histories, recording our histories. And it, it speaks to people. And we're so lucky to be in a, we are lucky. In a time where we're, we're sort of reinventing the wheel in that regard. It's pretty great. Okay. Okay, that's my peak of the that was That was very, that was really lovely. This is what's going to keep you going for another week, I think. All yep. right. Can, speaking of great storytelling, uh, I want to tell people about what's going to happen on the next episode. We're going to go back to Messina, Bitcoin. Listeners, Jen and I are like dying to know, is that sweet town that has gone through so much economic turmoil, is it going to benefit from this crypto empire (laughs) we've been telling you about with all that cheap electricity, uh, the industrial ruins that they've made work for themselves? That is where we're going to go. And spoiler alert, as we mentioned already, the next phase on the hype cycle is the trough of disillusionment. There's this very dark cloud that hangs over the community. And I think that is fear. Yes, the darker side of all the Bitcoin bonanza in the town of Messina. That is in two weeks when our next episode comes out. Also, I talked to Kevin Werbach from MIT about what the story of Bitcoin, of virtual currencies and blockchain generally, what it says about humans and trust and what feels like a very crucial moment in our global economy. Technology truly will set us free, and we really can solve the hardest problems in the world. That's in many ways a really amazing, wonderful thing. But it also leads to a tendency to too much assumption that we're going to solve all the world's problems, which is obviously what we're seeing now with companies like Facebook and Google and so forth, where now in some ways they're causing the world's problems. It's going to be good. Please tell someone you know about the show. Word of mouth is how we grow ZigZag. And also sign up for our excellent, bi-weekly right now, newsletter so we're not, you know, spamming you. 
It is chock full of links, photos, and information. Sign up at zigzagpod.com. Also, have we told them, Jen, that the art for this season is so stunning? It is by Sarah Wong. She has done work for NPR, for The Atlantic, lots of great places. They should go check it out online at zigzagpod.com. Jen is working with her and Thalia to create special art for every episode for this season three. We love Sarah Wong. She's awesome. And it's been really fun. And I, I really do love this artwork. Yeah, she's digging the hype cycle stuff. Okay, let's do the business. This episode was produced by me, Jen Poyant, and Thalia Beatty. Matt Boynton was our audio engineer. David Herman is our composer. Many thanks to Dan DeZula for his help, too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Thank you so much for listening. What are we going to put as our kicker? There's got to be something in that conversation we just had. Something, right? Maybe this. (laughs) (laughs) Such dorks. Okay. Uh, Room tone for a sec. What is that noise? I don't know.